0: Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. During my recent trip to Kenya, I was able to do two of these shows. The first one was already posted last week, and this one is with the Dean of the Strathmore Law School, Dr. Luis Franceschi. He talks to us about his origins in Venezuela and how he moved to Nairobi. His experience going back to Venezuela and also about his experience as a dean of a really impressive law school. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, uh, thank you for joining us in this uh, podcast. I'm really excited because today I'm with Dr. Luis Gabriel Franceschi, who is the Dean of Stratmore Law School in Nairobi, Kenya. And he was kind enough to accept my invitation, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. How are you today, Luis?
1: Fine, thank you.
0: Uh, thank you for accepting. I, I was really excited because I was here last year, and I was really impressed by the the students the students were really high level students but uh, you also have really nice uh, buildings
1: (laughs) yeah that's true Um, however the building uh, the buildings are not what make a a university but it is true you need to have good facilities to instill a good culture of hard work cleanliness Mean, let the students feel here like they do f- would feel in Stanford or in any other university yeah. in a developed country. Well, so uh, uh,
0: uh, and that uh, I can tell you, like it feels like that when yeah. you uh, walk in. And you're right, it doesn't make the uh, the university, but if you create that environment,
1: I yeah. think it's helpful for the. Yeah, that's true. Well, you see, to tell you a little bit about the university first, about myself. Yes. Uh, I'm French by descent, Venezuelan by birth, and Kenyan by choice. (laughs) Uh, I've lived in Kenya most of my life, 26 years, Um, and I have seen this country change. I've seen East Africa change, it's unbelievable the the positive change we have seen in these countries. I mean, uh, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, Nairobi was a small city with no traffic. Uh, not much to do uh, in the whole place. I mean, today is an um, impressive metropolis with problems. It's true, the problems of development, but also the challenges of a great future. Yeah. And the, the aspirations of a great future. So. Uh, but
0: you said yeah. you were born in Venezuela. In, in Venezuela. Venezuela. So, yeah. how,
1: how was that? Where, where exactly? Uh, in Caracas. Okay. I was born in Caracas. Certainly, I have been to Venezuela um, a few times, and um, perhaps I was there in January uh, this year, before that, five years ago or so. Um, I don't go too often, but it's true the Venezuela I saw in January, and five years ago is not the Venezuela I knew as a child. So it's unbelievable how a rich country with poor leadership can turn itself into chaos. And in partly what we have seen in many countries in Africa. I mean, if you look at DRC Congo, um, well, it happens that way. You have a very rich country with full of minerals, riches, everything, but a poor leadership and poor structures. Well, and sadly, that's what happened to, to Venezuela. Uh, there is no explanation, logical explanation, why there should be such hunger and such infrastructural chaos in a country that has the largest oil reserve in the world, the second largest gold reserves, etc. In Kenya, for example, there is no gold, there is no, no, practically no minerals, I mean, very few. You could say titanium in Kuala in the coast, there is very little oil oil has been found is not yet exploited it's not exactly viable for commercial purposes no um, or at, at least so far is mm-hmm. not i mean it doesn't justify the construction of a refinery a huge oleoduct and and things like that um, we live mostly of tea coffee uh, flowers interestingly flower the flower industry has been a success story in the last 10, 12 years. I mean, it has grown to overtake some of the biggest flower producers in the world. Uh, And tourism. uh, Tourism, but you know, tourism is overrated in Kenya. The economy in Kenya will not grow or slow down because of tourism. Really, we depend more on the rains because we are mostly an agricultural society and most of the trade that is done is done in terms of subsistence agriculture. I'm not an economist, but uh, anyway, <laughs> those are the details or the data I
0: and have. And there's also a under. big component about the remands from the diaspora, is that also Yes, that's also
1: very significant, yes. The, the income uh, from diaspora, it's quite significant. Okay. Uh, that's something remarkable. Then Strathmore, <laughs> um, but but before we yeah. get
0: to that, how was uh, how was growing up in Venezuela when you said that the country
1: was different? What well, was like then? Um, Venezuela is 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 a very interesting social experiment, you could say, because it was an extremely rich country. Yeah. I mean, in many ways. Uh, call it the Dubai of the 70s, yep. 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, where infrastructure was built with no effort, buildings were coming up, tall skyscrapers, highways, I mean, you can cross Caracas without touching a traffic light, mm. because they are elevated highways, etc. The metro in Caracas was inaugurated, was one of the most modern and cleanest metros in the world. Um it had the one of the biggest hydroelectric dams in the world. I mean was was an amazing I remember uh, in school, for example, all the surnames were from different parts of the world. You had Arabs, English, Germans, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, French from all over the world. Okay. Um, the airport in Caracas could not hold the small planes because too many people own small planes. Yeah. I mean, it was fashionable <laughs> uh, to, to have in the house five, six cars and a small plane. Oh, wow. So it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was something that was not sustainable. All that because of oil income. and But at the same time, that created a huge influx, migration from neighbor countries mainly from Colombia, Ecuador, also for political reasons from Argentina and Chile. Uh, And of course, that somehow blotted the social systems to a point that, of course, I mean, a country of 17 million inhabitants, you all of a sudden get four million immigrants. Uh, Destabilizes. Destabilizes the whole thing. Uh, This blocked the the social mobility. I mean, so, and created a huge gap between the rich and the poor. And that was never properly managed. There was a lot of corruption. It increased corruption. About what course, year are we talking when this started changing? Um, I would say perhaps around 76, 77, 78. Okay. Um, maybe a little bit earlier, perhaps 75, you could say. Um, it's, it's a moment when you realize, okay, I means slums are growing a, at a speed that cannot be managed. Uh, people are getting stuck in slums. Uh, there is no possibility of moving from the slum into the urban areas. And of course, that brings a generalized social discontent that had a valve, scape valve That was Hugo
0: Chavez,
1: a man who came with very many promises, a beautiful social project, but sadly unsustainable, pegged to the oil revenues. So we fell into the mistake we had fallen before, uh, 20 years before, that was to build the country on oil. So Chavez does that. He starts giving out plenty of social benefits that were important, but at the same time, you say, well, how will this be sustained yes. if there is no production? And of course, the day the oil came down, the economy crashed. Um, and of course, also, this excess of social projects with super abundance of, of money uh, triggered further corruption. Mm. I mean, e- economists estimate that perhaps $1 trillion have disappeared in Venezuela in the last three years? So well I mean a trillion dollar is the, a six of the of the budget of the US and this is a country of twenty five million inhabitants or so thirty. Well now nobody knows because five million have left. Uh, it's a country that is agricultural, that has plenty of minerals, water, etc. So how do you uh, how can you explain that there should be such level of scarcity and misery. Mm. Um, to give you an example, uh, I went there in January. When I left Paris, in, uh, my, my flight was Nairobi, Paris, Caracas. When I left Paris, the dollar was at 700. And when you landed? And when I landed, <laughs> it was at 2,000. Oh my God. And when I came out of the airport, it was at 2,500 then I went to buy some bread in a bakery. After going to several bakeries, and I was told, well, yeah, 3,000 bolivares." When I went to pay, because you have to queue for half an hour, because nobody has enough cash, you have to pay with cards, and the inflation is at 10 million percent. So the, le- the, the limit of the cards is too low, I mean, it could be three or four dollars. Um, when I went to pay, they said, sorry, 3,700. Why? Because while you were in the queue, the prices went up. But how can this be? And the man explained, look, I have to replace this bread with new bread. If I don't charge this price, I can't replace it, and I have to close the shop. That's what most people have done. But if I want to continue selling, I have to change prices as they go. So, of course- And the salaries are- And and then, of course, a a minimum salary was 4,000. So you are buying a loaf of bread, for 3,700, and that loaf of bread will last you for uh, for a month, and perhaps with the other 300 bolivares, you 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 can buy I don't know one peanut. <laughs> so that's your diet for a whole month. Oh my God! So it's impossible. it's, it's not because many people have made the terrible mistake of saying, oh, this is an issue of Trump versus Putin, right versus left, and then the capitalist against the communists, is not an issue of ideology. It's not an issue of right and left. It's an issue of simply incredible mismanagement and theft. If it had been done for, by the capitalists, it would be the same. But it's simply mismanagement, poor leadership, and theft no matter from which side you look at it. And that is why the international leftist movements are very ashamed of of Venezuela. I mean, they don't express their support for Maduro. They may say they are not with Trump, but they are not with Maduro, which is because really nobody rational can be with Maduro. I mean, after uh, uh, throwing a country into such chaos, well, I mean, you, you can't really justify it.
0: And uh, so while you were growing up in Venezuela, how did this environment affect you? What what, what was going on in your mind and when this yeah. was...
1: Well, you know, one thing is that life was too easy uh, in, in financial terms. Even if you were not rich, I mean, I don't come from a particularly rich family, but the house girl who used to work in my parents' place... Um, she went for a trip to Europe for a tour of Europe for two months. Mm. And she paid that with her savings. And you say, well, this makes no sense. There is an imbalance. So Venezuelans from, I mean, a taxi driver could go to Miami uh, four times a year and buy and bring back. So certainly there was, it it was the Venezuela-Saudi kind of people would say nowadays. Um, So when I came to Kenya, Venezuela was still very okay. I mean, no one could foresee that things were going to go wrong or that wrong. When I came to Kenya in 93, uh, it was a culture shock, even though one of my grandmothers is from Africa, uh, but it was a culture shock because I said, well, people here really work. They, they have to work hard to live. To live. Mm. I mean, a, a worker in Kenya will go walking from industrial area to Kibera, that is sometimes 10 kilometers every day, to go to work. And then you have a casual contract. If you don't go one day, you are not paid for that day. And you have no holidays. Mm. I mean, it's a draconian, unfair system. And you realize that what happens is that the colonizer was replaced by the neo-colonizer. That was basically the African politician who replaced the colonizer in power, the British. And of course, they were not interested in changing any laws. Labor law was not a priority because it will make me earn less money. Mm -hmm. So you have a huge social gap in Kenya incredibly high I mean I met very few families that own a car and say well but in Venezuela everyone has a car in Venezuela you travel to Europe they they (laughs) put the the full tank with with one shilling and Mm. here it cost you 5,000 shillings I mean those are 50 euros for a tank that is a lot of money here for our standard then you say well and, and people are walking to work, and there are no social benefits, labor benefits. I mean, the situation is very unfair from that perspective. But these people are really dedicated. And if they are poor, they are not poor. You see, it's interesting. In Venezuela, you are poor because you live in a slum. But in that slum, you may have a car because you can afford a car and you can drive it. Uh, you may have in the old days mm-hmm. now the situation has changed because people are going hungry but you could have a very good TV station you could have a, a sore a TV set you could have a fantastic music system I mean life was to a certain point decent and the houses were made of of blocks i mean of of, of yeah I mean stones and and they were ugly but at least there was some sort of standard. Well, when I came here and I visited a few slums like Korogosho, parts of Kibera, you say, well, but this is inhuman. These people are living, these are not houses. I mean, somebody, sometimes a politician, sadly, put a shack with with, uh, 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 nothing, I mean, steel and broken pieces of wood And you call that a house, and it's a room of three by three. And then they have to pay rent. I think in Venezuela, perhaps also in, in, in most places in Brazil, I don't know, in Mexico, if you have to pay rent for living in an occupied, illegally occupied piece of land that belongs to the state, where you built a house, an informal structure, well, you will ban the place. You will kill somebody. I mean, nobody comes to. to to ask you for rent. Well, here, they are charged rent. I mean, to live in Kibera, in fact, an acre of land in Kibera brings you more benefits, financially speaking, than an acre of land in Muzaiga. That is the best, one of the best areas in Nairobi. Is that absurd. Um, So, well, I realized that life was tough. And for example, all roads in Venezuela were tarmacked because petroleum is is practically free. Well, in Kenya, they were not. Mm. And to tarmac a road, wow, that really took very many years. So at the same time, it's very interesting. I found in Kenya the social mobility I did not see in Venezuela. For example, here in the law school, I have had uh, students from incredibly poor areas. I mean, I'm speaking here of a child soldier, a former child soldier from South Sudan, who, whose family was killed. He was abducted. He was taken into the army. He escaped when he was uh, 13 or 14. He ended up in a refugee camp. He was very clever, he did very well in school, he got a scholarship, he came to do law. Now that man, young man, is one of the top lawyers in one of the biggest banks in Africa. I mean, his life has changed because of education.
0: Do you think that uh, that, that promise of social mobility is maybe
1: what is holding the system in place? You know, I think so. It is. Uh, Another example, Um, a former student of mine also called Edward, from an incredibly poor background, Maasai, from deep inside Maasai land. He had never been to Nairobi before he came to study law here. Well, he is today in Harvard doing his master's. He is coming back, and one of the biggest law firms in Kenya wants him back, we also want him back if he (laughs) wants to come to the law school you see so, but the life of Edward has changed he can now build a house for his parents, he can buy a car he can buy a flat he's going to be a very successful uh, lawyer so of course so there's no social blanket provided by uh, the government, so
0: it's provided by the own individuals yeah I remember actually I came across one of your posts Mm -hmm. in social media like a couple of months ago about also a similar case of a student that is in the Graduate Institute in Ruben, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was really... Yeah, in Geneva. Yeah, in Geneva. Uh And I also, I I have to meet with him, but uh, when I read the story I actually identified myself also Yeah because maybe my experience was not as extreme as that, but it was also quite similar. But what is remarkable, I I agree with you. Uh, I also have seen that there's a lot of social mobility pretty similar to why people in Latin America go to the U.S., to the promise of a better life. But this is within the same country. And uh, is that perhaps why there has not been any...
1: Uh, revolution. Yeah, it's true. You know something interesting. The key to social mobility in Kenya is education. Okay. And people will be ready to do any sacrifice to get education. So, and that's why you see the little kids in kindergarten, they're already learning to read and write because if they do well, they can get a good primary that guarantees a good secondary that guarantees a good university degree and then you have a good life. It's incredible. I mean, I have seen it with so many friends and so many examples. People who, I mean, could not even afford to have lunch. Sometimes you go to the cafeteria here in Strathmore that some people may say, wow, this Strathmore is an elite university. No, but, well, you have people from all over the place and you go to the cafeteria, and you find boys and girls having lunch with a plate of, of French fries, mm. and chips, because they can't afford anything else. You can't put a sausage on that plate. And these same people, well, five years down the line, well, they, they are the movers of the economy. Yeah. And um,
0: yeah, I, I have seen that like, they, the families here really struggle
1: and they look for school fees. Yeah. That
0: is an ongoing yeah. struggle that never yeah. stops.
1: And in fact, you know, I have told many friends, ambassadors, from donor countries, that handouts will keep Africa poor. Uh, if you really want to help in a sustainable manner, I mean, you, certainly handouts will be necessary, especially in certain situations of critical drought or excess... Uh, flooding as it happened in Mozambique, I means people will die if you don't come in and help, yeah. but that would also happen in Europe or in the America or anywhere uh, but social handouts as a constant program is just a very simplistic way of helping, so actually what you are doing is you are keeping those people poor because you are giving them the fish what you have to do is Well, to educate. Um, I always tell my friends, look, if you really want to help, give scholarships. Do away with all this aid for, I don't know what, capacity building of this and that, meetings in hotels. No, just give scholarships. Establish a proper structure that gives deserving children scholarships. Deserving, why? Because. If you say free education for all, that's fantastic. I mean, it should be done. But that's not a scholarship system. You see, that is simply a social system of making sure that you reach higher literacy. But literacy will not make you a competitive country in the world. Especially now. Exactly, mm. especially now. So you, you have so many intelligent, incredible young people in that Africa. They never given the opportunity. Yeah. Who are never getting the opportunity. So you find a way of identifying deserving children. There is a bank, equity bank, that is doing this with the Wings to Fly program. They have 10,000 children in scholarships. Well, the success stories are incredible from from this. I mean, this is a social revolution, but in the positive sense. And uh, here in, in
0: Strathmore, uh, in the law school, how do, is there any? of these programs for scholarship for
1: these yes. kind of students? Yeah, of course. We we try to keep at least a twenty percent of our population of students on scholarship. percent, okay. Yeah. They are more on partial scholarship. And of course there are very many people from the you could say from the middle, lower middle class who are really struggling to pay fees. Um, but It's very beautiful to see how families will make, well, any effort for quality education. It's true what we are trying to give here is quality education. Uh, We have an exchange program, for example, with Cornell, and our students who go to Cornell, they do exceedingly well. I mean, so what they have learned here gives them a very strong foundation to be competitive for all over the world. A little anecdote. We have an academic trip every year to Europe. Uh, it's part of public international law. Okay. We did this by adding $300 per year to the fees. So in four years, they have paid for the trip, mm-hmm. and even those on scholarship get to go. So 90% of the students have never been abroad. They have never... That's the first time. It's the go. first time. Yeah. Never seen a plane on the inside. and. Of course, when they go to Europe, it's an incredible uh, challenge because, uh, well, wait a minute. I thought Nairobi was the best city in the world because it's the best I have seen in East Africa. But when you arrive in The Hague, you say, well, but how is this place so organized and so clean? Why can't this happen in Nairobi and so safe? Um, Why do people respect the traffic lights? Why? Then, of course, there are many whys they start asking themselves. And uh, one day, one of the students, two of them were talking. I was walking behind them and I heard them say, We have been cheated. We have been independent for 55 years. And our country is still in, in, in Tatars. mean, here we, we, we are in Germany the Germans were flattened in 1945. In 15 years, they were a power to reckon with in the world. Mm. So what has happened to us? I mean, why are we blaming the colonizers when we have been already independent for 55 years? So, well, those are the challenges we want them to come across. Um, Why made you come to Kenya, of all the places? You know, I came, well, for family reasons. Uh, in principle I was here for two years then became three then four, then five that's
0: usually how it happens
1: (laughs) and of course suddenly you wake up and you have been here the whole of your life almost (laughs) Uh, but really if I had the chance of turning back the clock uh, I would make the same decision I mean it has been an amazing experience and you see Really, well, this is not something I said only, but I, I, I will tell you what uh, I have never met students of the quality of brains and the human qualities I meet here. Um, you know, th- there is a professor, a very famous professor, who used to be in Harvard and then NYU, and he became president of the European University Institute in Florence. Then back to NYU is Joseph Weylar. Yeah. He came here to teach and he told me, look, I have taught in every university in the world. I have never, ever met students who are this intelligent and disengaged. And and it's very true, I have seen it. Uh, When we were visiting the International Court of Justice, the former vice president, who is now the president of the court, was giving a, a lecture together with another judge to the students because we organized these lectures in these tribunals and courts. Uh, Justice Yusuf and Justice Sebutinde were talking to them. And they were telling them simple things. Well, this is the court. This is the courtroom. We have so many judges and this and, and that. the students were like, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> then, do you have any question? And the student, one student, a girl, stood up Say thank you, uh, judge, and I would like to ask you, in the case of Nicaragua versus El Salvador, um, you interpreted, because you wrote that decision, the margin of appreciation in this way. Recently, the International Criminal Court has decided the margin of appreciation has interpreted it in this other different way, and the European Court of Human Rights also had a different appreciation. So if you have to write your decision again today, what would you say? Of course, I mean, the judge was shocked. And he turned and asked me, are these undergraduate or postgraduate? I said, no, they are undergraduate, third-year students. Wow. OK, I don't really remember what I wrote <laughs> in the decision. But and then, <laughs> beautiful. And then later on, he was so happy and was telling me, well, I mean, it's um, amazing. So It's yeah. true, and
0: I, I can I can attest to that because I, I saw it myself. My wife is also Kenyan. Uh, she's also a lawyer. She's 10,000 times better lawyer than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing because, uh, for example, uh, an example that comes to mind, like, I came to visit them here in, in Kenya, and I see that they don't have washing machines. So they have to wash everything by hand. They have to walk then five kilometers to work. so like they have to do pretty much everything that I have to do but they have to jump through obstacles yeah. on the way to get yeah. there and I take many of the and many of the world not only it, we take yeah. some of these things for
1: granted for granted
0: yeah I think that that uh, that uh, obstacles that they face in their life every day is what makes them yeah. it go the great. length and makes them greater yeah. than yeah. but I, yeah. I honestly I, I completely agree with you they're really committed, really smart. Yeah. And is that the reason why you
1: continue to be here? Yeah, perhaps I I think so. But OK, I'm also a Kenyan now. <laughs> so uh, I would say this is home. But you see something interesting that when you are saying of the oft- obstacles they have to face, um, which, recently. Which they
0: don't even see as exactly. obstacles. They just feel like, is this part it's of life? part of life.
1: Yeah. You see, for example, here it's raining. There are no sidewalks. I mean, Nairobi was a city built for people with cars. So you don't have sidewalks. So there are plenty of paddles. So you get wet all the way as you walk. And you arrive in the place, but in a little plastic bag, they carry extra shoes, extra socks, extra trousers. And and they're always smart, elegant, smiling. I mean, I have never, ever asked a person uh, in Kenya, anybody in Kenya, how are you? And Not the answer so bad. is but, no, it's always msuri sana, yeah. that means muy, very well. Yeah. See, <laughs> it's so, it's, it's incredible, it's, it's a very positive way of looking at life.
0: Uh, and, and, and uh, so you studied here in, you did your yes, LLM here in
1: Nairobi. In Nairobi. And, and, and then you my doctorate in the University of Navarre, but from here.
0: From here? You yeah, were I used
1: to go and come back and go and come back.
0: Navarra is a really nice uh, place. Very uh, beautiful, <laughs> yeah. Very
1: and, uh, nice but you, you did it in English? Yes, yeah. Is that a, I, it's a... Yeah, they allowed. I mean, now with the sort of unification of the system, uh, the, the Bologna agreement, okay. you can do it in English. So, the, the doctorate, so I wrote my thesis on the human rights system in Africa. I mean, mechanisms for the implementation or enforcement of judicial decisions in Africa.
0: And, uh, so you've had a really prominent academic uh, career, but I also see that,
1: in parallel you've done a lot of uh, practical, professional things. Yes. That's true. I think it's important for an academician. Certainly, it is not possible to have two jobs at the same time, two full-time jobs at the same time. So those who say I'm a scholar but I'm also practicing full time, they are cheating themselves. And you are either a mediocre scholar or a mediocre practitioner. But part of scholarly work is to advise to expand the classroom and to encourage also the staff members to expand their classroom. I mean, you don't have just 50 or 60 students. I mean, your classroom is is the whole of Kenya. So what can you teach the whole of Kenya? I mean, if you can make some contribution uh, in the Ministry of Justice or in the Attorney General's chambers or they look for you as a consultant to resolve this problem, certainly you should go for it.
0: And the students, when they're st- studying, is it common in Kenya? Because in Mexico, it's common for students while they're doing law school to also be working, like part-time. Yeah. Is
1: that something common here in? Okay, here, no, it's not common because the timetable doesn't allow. Yeah. Uh, it's not common to be working in a law firm, but it's common for them to do extra works, uh, let's say, informally. So for example, they do a lot of research. They try to get involved in research centers, helping consultancies, mean to earn extra money. Some of them need it. Yeah. Those who can work in the university will work in the university. The university tries to make it possible for them to work in the evening or, or in the morning, depending. But, but yeah, they have to try to resolve the economic problem. Very interesting, during the long holidays, you still find many students coming to the law school because to study, they they like the environment, they find themselves at home. Sometimes their houses may have no power, no electricity, I mean, no no facilities. So the school is open throughout. The school is open throughout, and they come and they meet friends, and they also come to read and do research.
0: I also remember when I was here last year that you gave us a copy of the law journal, I read some of the articles there. They're really yeah. quality
1: articles. Very nice. It's true. I mean, imagine the, the law review, the Strathmore Law Review, is done fully by, st- by students, but it's is a scholarly article. Yeah. Well, in fact, a little anecdote. I gave a copy of that law review to the vice president of Microsoft when he came to visit from Seattle. Well, on his way back, right. he wrote to me an email. I mean, saying, look, I read this and these articles in the plane, and I was very excited. This is true, and this, and this, and that, and those students, wow. Say, well, wow, I, 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 when I gave it to him, I thought I was losing the copies. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you give somebody a book, and the thing goes to a shelf, or even left behind because yeah. you have too much luggage. No, this man was reading those articles.
0: No, it's true. I, I also read it, and so, I was like, gladly impressed, and I was comparing it to, my university in Mexico, University of Panamericana, at the time we didn't even have a journal ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's more because here of the
1: influence of common law? Yes, I mean, yeah, in the, in the universities, yeah, in the common law system is more, more co- well, in the English system, in the English world, is more, more common, more yeah. common to, have the, to have journals and the like. However, for example, in, in Kenya, When we started the law review, there was no other journal. There had been a journal in one of the public universities, but it was discontinued. I mean, it was very haphazard. Every four years, you saw an issue coming out. So this was the first continuously produced and scheduled uh, review done by students, and also the one done by scholars, because there are two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that has been a great, great Yeah, and
0: that, that uh, working on, if you're a student and you're working on an article,
1: that itself provides you more yeah. education than exactly. going yeah. to a class. Yeah, 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 it's true. And that is why in the new curriculum, we give them credits for, them, for yeah. publications, mood competitions, and, and social work, I mean, legal clinics, yeah. basically.
0: Yeah, that, Sorry, that's also something yeah. that I, I saw. How, how important it is to you to, in your work to keep
1: informed about what's going on in other institutions in the world? Yes, we have plenty of relationships with universities all over. I mean, we have MOUs and I would say de facto and de jure <laughs> relationship with many universities with the best universities in the world, I mean, with the top universities in the US, in UK, South Africa, Australia, in continental Europe. Um, And we are trying to work with a few more, uh, with a few more universities. The idea is, you see, you become a good soccer player by, by playing with the best. And, and, of course, we want to expose the students to that, and we want to expose the, the staff members also to that. So it's very impressive. We have quite a number of very well-prepared. I mean, most of them, incidentally, are young Kenyan women professionals yeah. who have studied in the best universities in the world, and they come back here to teach, and they do a fantastic uh, job. And also the students, for example, now, during holidays, they have to do internships. Uh, at the end of first year, social work for 200 hours, in a hospital, in a school, in, in their community. At the end of second year, judicial attachment with a judge or a magistrate all over the country. At the end of third year, with a law firm or a Corporation, the legal department of corporation. And they do that here and all over the world. I mean, currently we have two in Spain, uh, two in Italy, four in the US, two in the UK, uh, one in Russia. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting how they go all over the place. In Australia, two others, but many of them, most of them, well, in Africa, in other countries in Africa. In Arusha, we have five. Um, in Uganda, we have two and and that uh, keeps the the you see keep keeps them playing with the big teams yeah. in the world and makes you better they are foreign in argentina as well learning spanish and working in a low farm so that, very that's interesting
0: uh, that's really good from the standpoint of the student for them to be offered all of yes. these uh, opportunities but you personally do you do you see what's going on in
1: universities? say,
0: How do you implement some of these okay, programs? You
1: see, something we we did, first of all, and, and it's a mentality that has really grasped the staff members here. There's nothing impossible. And thank God Stratmo is so prestigious, because it was the first multiracial and multireligious educational institution in English-speaking Africa, That. With the name Strathmore you can do practically anything and that's very beautiful so yes you 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 just jump into the depend I mean uh, staff members are continuously attending and writing papers for conferences all over the world attending conferences if possible I mean if they are funded by the organizers the university will fund you if you if you Write a paper, which you have to present, and and if that uh, if that happens, of course people are exposed. They create networks, they get to know people, and of course it's a fantastic thing. You don't, uh, yeah. Well, uh, I mean I don't want to take much more of your time, but
0: I really appreciate this uh, candid conversation. I. I also, I'm not Kenyan yet, but uh, (laughs) you're on the way. I'm on the way. Uh, I mean, thank you for your ideas and you're doing doing really good work here. Fantastic. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay.